Thank you to all of our worship leaders this morning for preparing our hearts for the word. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 as we're making our way through that. And uh, I think, Brother Daniel, if you would maybe get my, my screen over here. I'm going to diagram a few things for you this morning. Let's take our Bibles and let's stand together as we read chapter 2, the first 10 verses. If you would, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're making our way through this study called Sit, Walk, Stand. And this great book, the book of Ephesians, is about the church and about what the church is like. And so you follow along as I read. He's talking to the Ephesians, and he includes himself in this verse. But he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's two of the best words in the New Testament. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the what, church? It's the the gift of God. And it's not a result of works any kind of good works that you could do so that none of us may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that as we open up chapter 2, this unbelievable chapter in your Bible, We've been singing about this truth, and may we crown you with glory and honor as we see what you have accomplished to build your church. We're so privileged to sit in heavenly places with Jesus this morning, not by our works, but by grace through faith. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Help us understand it more deeply and respond to it. As you call each one of us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is an incredible, incredible chapter, but I'm not going to spend quite as much time in this chapter because here's what we have been learning so far in Ephesians. What we've been learning is that the church was created in in the very mind of God, and in, in verse 10 of this chapter, it says that we, the church, are his workmanship. We are being created in Christ Jesus. And the word created there is is not like me kind of working hard to dig a hole and kind of build a pile of dirt. It's not that kind of create. It is create in terms of artistry. It is putting together masterfully. And so God has masterfully created and put together his church, the body of Christ in Christ. 
the world. And so we have this, uh, we have this beautiful picture that, uh, that God gives us of this, of this reality. And I'm going to try to diagram it. Here we, have, here we have the world, but in the heavenly places, seated with Christ on his throne, seated with Christ on his throne is the church. And, and you can kind of just draw a little church. I don't know if you want to, this is not too many churches look like this anymore, but you'll know what I'm talking about. When you put that church and is seated, seated in heavenly places. So everybody say amen if you know what we're talking about here. You're following me. So we've got the church of Jesus Christ. He says he seated us with, with him and we are his workmanship and he's created us in Christ Jesus. In fact, if you look at verse 19 of this chapter, look what it says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the what? The household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, meaning the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the prophets, that was in the gospel, that was the foundation of this church, and the, and the very cornerstone of the church of God is who? Is Jesus. And so Jesus came, and we had the apostles, and he built this new body, this new household, and, uh, and he put us together in Christ Jesus for all eternity. And verse 21 says, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so God is putting this together, and he's putting this together marvelously. But in this chapter, there's something that Paul wants us to see. The apostle wants us to see that uh, this was uh, a miraculous undertaking for God when you consider what he had to work with. When you consider what he had to work with when he built this. I remember uh, one of my first building projects as a young man, I was probably... 11 or 12, 13 years old, we had a dog named Skipper. And I just, and Skipper was an outdoor dog, was bathed probably, you know, every other year or so. We just kind of let him do his thing outside. And it would snow there in Richmond. And it was one of those times where we had like a foot snow. I was really feeling far, sorry for Skipper. So I decided I would build him a dog house. And so I got some hammer and nails. And I just kind of pulled scrap wood from wherever I could find it out from under the porch. You know, the scraps that had been accumulated over years by people that lived. I just kind of pulled scraps. They were mismatched. They were warped. They were waterlogged. And at the end, what I had was not a piece of art. Let me just tell you. But it was something Skipper enjoyed. It had a hole he could go in, and it was a little better than being outside. But I just used whatever I could find. And what the Apostle Paul says is that God has created this masterpiece the church, the body of Christ. Remember in chapter one, it says that we've been, we've been set aside to be pure and blameless. We have been purified in Christ. We're being made beautiful like a bride of Christ. But it's amazing what Paul says in chapter two. He says, we ought to praise God when we understand that God created this church out of, out of scrap. Now, you don't, we bear the image of God, but notice what he had to overcome miraculously to put together the body of Christ forever and ever and ever. Now, my parents were somewhat proud of the doghouse I built. It was okay. 
But we have no pictures left of that doghouse. It was nothing really to brag about. But God's work in building the church of Jesus Christ will be to glorify him forever and ever and ever. But watch what the Apostle Paul says. And to to break it down, I want us to, we're going to have three points this morning. The first is we're going to see what we were without Christ. Because he wants us to see what we were without Christ. And then he he wants us to see the life we have with Christ. And then we're going to see very quickly the path that we have to Christ, to life in Christ. But he goes into great detail to describe what God had to work with when he built uh, his church. He says in verse 1, you, the building blocks of the church, were what? You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but then it says in verse 2, you were walking in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? So here's the picture. God's going to build his church. Jesus promised he's going to build his church, and he says, okay, what am I going to build it with? And he says, I'm going to build it with spiritually dead people, enslaved to inordinate desires who are by nature children of wrath. Couldn't he have picked something better? Here's the problem. There wasn't anything better. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we've got a dividing line, don't we? He's going to build the church, but Paul says, here's the deal. Before he could build his church and seat it in heavenly places, he had to deal with the spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead. We were the walking dead. Now, there's a show out. I, I wouldn't recommend this show <laughs> called The Walking Dead. But if you think about it over the last, I don't know how many decades, we just got this this fascination with zombie apocalypses and all sorts of, uh, of, of, of walking dead. I find it very interesting. But Paul uses very similar terminology. He says, spiritually, we're very similar to the walking dead you can see on the television shows. How so? Well, this show is kind of interesting. I, if it, the premise of this show is that a disease has, has killed the, has this disease will bring dead people back to life, but all they live for is to consume human flesh. Everybody say, ooh. Yeah, that's just gross, but all, they have this inordinate desire, and they just walk through the woods all day long, <laughs> seeking whom they may devour. And if they run, come upon living flesh, they have, they'll do anything. I mean, they'll go through fences. They'll just crawl through things. They'll go to any amazing extent to try to find what it is they desire. Listen to what Paul says. Without Christ, spiritually, you are similar. You are in motion. You have a physical life, but spiritually, you are dead. But, but notice you are, not, you are not able to resist enslavement to several things. In verse 2 it says, in which you once walked following the course 
of this world following the prince of the power of the air. You just see, basically, those who are without Christ are physically alive, and they might be, in general, good people. Good people, that's great. Not, you, you just can't tell a lot of times. I mean, there's lots of good people who are spiritually dead. But, then they're, but what, what sets that apart is that they are not able to resist the, the, the course of this world, the way this world works. They are not able to truly resist the enslavement to sin. Just like a dead body cannot resist anything. It is simply, it is simply at, the, uh, at the control of whatever is there. And it says that there is a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, passion can be good, but there are passions. And the Greek word epithumia is inordinate passions. Where the natural passions and desires of our life uh, are out of control. And those who are spiritually dead cannot cannot keep that from happening. And so God's, God's going to have to do something with the spiritually dead. How is he going to build a church out of the spiritually dead who are absolutely enslaved to the mechanisms and philosophies of this world and to the desires of the flesh? How is he going to build a church out of that? Well, it's just absolutely amazing what he does. It says that by his great mercy, what did he do? He made us alive in Christ Jesus. He made us alive. You may find yourself in this position this morning. Because remarkably, even those who are spiritually dead, the Holy Spirit has the power and the ability to give you the the. the openness of spiritual ears to hear what is being said this morning. And like Lazarus in the tomb, out of your spiritual death, the Holy Spirit can cause you to come to life and be essentially born again. But without Christ, you're helpless. You are spiritually dead. There's no way to get through to this, to being with God. We're captured by the spirit of this age. There's some debate about verse 2 where it says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, whether it's talking about a a spiritual entity, but I think it's more like uh, what you might experience if you go to a say a Florida basketball game or a Florida State basketball game or football game, you will see people who normally are pretty reserved doing some very strange things. Now, what happens? What happens? Why are they now covered in orange paint? You know, I was at a basketball game the other night and I saw a grown man probably in his 60s who had taken an orange pair of underwear and put it over his head. (laughs) And I'm thinking, what is... He's got either some spirits in him. I don't know what's going on there. Or he's, he's gotten into the team spirit. He shouldn't be doing that. Don't do that in church, by the way. I, but but uh, people will get revved up. You ever been at a game, you know, and, and all of a sudden you see it coming. And here it comes. 
It's coming around the stadium, and you just you can't help yourself. Woo! Here it comes again. Here it comes again, right? And I just see in the picture, have y'all ever done the wave? All right, so maybe we'll do the wave in church. Now, that would be fun. But you just get into the spirit. And what, what he's saying is that we are captive to the spirit of this world. We, can't, we will just be going with the wave. We, we fall into that without Christ. We're spiritually dead. And so God comes and he works with us. And so we have a vertical problem, a vertical problem. We can't get there. But I want to show you something that's pretty remarkable in this chapter. Not only are we spiritually dead, we've got another problem that the Apostle Paul brings up. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, he's already told us that one time we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision. The Jewish folks just said, you're the uncircumcision. Uh, He says, you've got a problem. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, not just spiritually, but you were separated by virtue of your, uh, you were disqualified physically because you were not Jewish. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, so not only do you have a, a vertical problem, you've got in a sense a, uh, you've got in a sense a physical problem. And let me just kind of give it to you this way. You've got a bit of a physical problem. Uh, you can't get up there because the Jewish folks had access to God or they were the chosen people in the Old Testament and the rest of us by virtue of being Gentiles were left out does that make sense so we are not we we had two barriers if we're Gentiles we had the spiritual barrier barrier of spiritual deadness and we had the physical disqualification of being Gentiles God said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make my church out of people that are impossibly spiritually dead and absolutely set apart from the covenants and the special call on the people of Jews, of, of, of Israel. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near By the what, church? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's what he did. Jesus Christ came and he he opened up this pathway, which I can't seem to do, but he opened up this pathway. Jesus was able to do that. And in Christ, we broke through the legal, the legal barrier of the law and the covenants, and we broke through the spiritual barrier of being absolutely separated from God because of our trespasses and sins. He brought us to life out of spiritual death and physical disqualifications. To God be the glory. It's amazing what he's done. And Paul's just celebrating this in chapter 2. So he says, look at the way life is without Christ. You're dead spiritually. 
You may be walking. You may have walked into this room today, and you may have a smile, and you may be very, very healthy. But spiritually, if you don't have Christ, you're completely helpless to the course of this world, to the inordinate desires of your flesh. You can control them to a certain degree, but you are separated from God spiritually and physically forever and ever. But in Christ... In Christ, you can have life. Look at verse 7. He makes you alive so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the what? The gift of God. So there aren't any of us Gentiles who decided, I'm going to climb my way up. I'm going to work my way up the spiritual corporate ladder through good works. I've been at church my whole life. I've, I've given a lot of money. I've been pretty good to people, and you're working your way up. He says, no, 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 no. The only way you can have this kind of eternal life is as a gift. It is the gift of God by grace. The only access to God is by faith, through faith and by his grace. And this life will be marked by a number of things. Let me give you just a few. It says that uh, we are saved through faith. The life we have in Christ will be a life of continual believing in Christ. That word faith is placing your trust. It is a trusting belief. And so those who are born again, those who are spiritually alive, are marked by a state of of uh, consistent faith and belief. Belief in what? Belief in the core gospel. Belief in the truth of what it says about Jesus. That God became flesh. God the Son came. He died on a cross as a substitute for our sin. He was buried and on the third day he resurrected. He ascended to the Father and he's coming again. And that if you will trust in his work on the cross, he will forgive you of your sins you are baptized into the body of Christ. You, like he, will resurrect from the dead and live eternally in heaven. That is the simple gospel. He died on the cross for you. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose. He confirmed everything he said about who he is. And so you trust that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and is the only way you can have life with God forever and ever and ever. And so the life that we have now in Christ will be a life of believing. It will be also a life of boasting. But I want you to see what you won't be boasting in. It is not a result of works so that no one should boast. There'll be no boasting if you are spiritually born again, if you come to spiritual life through the work of the Holy Spirit, you will not be able to boast in your goodness, in your merit, in your accomplishments. You will be someone who boasts continuously in the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. You will be boasting in Jesus. Now, this is where I want to dig in just for a moment before we conclude. 
Because I know all across this room, I would say the majority of you probably, in your heart of hearts, know that you have no reason to boast. And that you are here celebrating this moment, celebrating with us in Christ and what he did for you. And you're trusting fully in that. But I know that there are many, probably in this place, that if we could, if we could do a heart exam spiritually and we could, we could peek in there, you're not spiritually alive, you're spiritually dead. And if we unwrapped it, we could see that you, your boast is not in the work of Christ, but is in somehow you're boasting in something about yourself. Now, let me just define the word boast because we think of boast in, in kind of pride sense. But really what he's talking about in boasting here is what it is that makes you feel strong. What it is that makes you feel strong. What it is that gives you a sense of, you know, I can handle this life I'm, I'm good to go. I can make it. I'm feeling pretty good. And if we were to break it down and think through it, we know of a number of things that people could trust in or place their strength in or boast in that would cause them to never meet Jesus. One, one is the strength of will, the strength of willpower. And some people are just born with, with great willpower. And I really don't like those people. They just have this, this ability to make themselves do things that, you know, normally you can't make yourself do. You know, just work hours and hours. And they get up real early and exercise and run miles and miles. And I'm just kidding. I like all of you folks. Uh, but anyway, some just have great strength of will and they just, they just will themselves to do good things. They will themselves to control their attitudes. They just have great strength of will, and you know people that like that. You might be one of those folks, and you're sitting there going, I, you know, I've got this under control. I can will myself through this life. And so you never meet Christ. You're never born again because like the devil, and this is really what got the devil into trouble with God, is he began to elevate his own sense of being. He began to become conceited in his own heart. And Satan, uh, uh, his pride lifted him up, it says in Scripture. And when he lifted himself up before God, he said, you know, I'm going to be like the Most High God. I want people to recognize me for all of my strong qualities. And his heart uh, became depraved and he was cast out of heaven. And listen, we're just kind of following in the prince of the power of the air. That's who that is. We're, we're falling into the same spiritual pattern when we don't know Christ. You are captive to conceit, and we all have conceit in different ways. It's just, it's just interesting. I played basketball, still play basketball. And uh, maybe you play a sport. Maybe you take pride in some of those things. And when I was younger, I had to take pride because I wasn't over six feet tall. I wasn't tall. I played with a lot of these tall guys. I had, to, I had to find my sense of purpose and strength in some other thing. I just couldn't be tall. I mean, as much as I wanted, I just couldn't be tall. But I could be fast. Or maybe I could jump high. I could say I'm a good passer. So you get out on the, you get out on the court, and there's, there's all these guys playing, and they all have this sense of why I can be out here. Why I don't just quit and give up. Maybe it's because I really look good in the uniform. 
that's not mine. Maybe it's, you got a good outside shot or maybe you're a good path. Everybody in life, everybody out there is, is looking for a reason to justify their existence. They're grasping onto something that says, okay, this life is worth it and you're worth living. You're worth being here. And so maybe it's their intellect or their strength of will. Look at the second one. Maybe it's strength of body. You can run into folks like that who's who's really their sense of well-being is being extremely fit. And and their hearts are empty. They've not met Christ, but they're they're trying to find what what is it that's going to make me strong? How can I handle this life? And so making sure they've got control of their body and their fitness is good. Some have strength of resources. They have the backing of a wealthy family, or maybe they've earned a lot of money. Maybe they have really, really good jobs, and they've stashed away a lot of cash. That's a really difficult one because it gives people such a false sense of security. And they begin to just feel like, I really don't know that I need Jesus. Look at all the resources I have to back me up. I bet in a university town, this next one is probably, it's strength of intellect. Strength of intellect. We got a lot of smart people around here. Do you know it's possible to be too smart? (laughs) Sometimes you just... You will think your way out of meeting Jesus. And you are trusting in your reasoning capacity. And those who get saved, those who come to true faith in Christ, come to a point where they understand that in their intellect they have no perfect reasoning ability. It's broken by sin. And you need God to reveal himself to you. Their strength of our heritage I've met many, many Baptists in the churches over the years that feel like they're believers, feel like they're going to heaven because their parents were good church-going Baptists, their grandparents were good church-going Baptists. And I, I've met people that are as, as far from God as they possibly can, but they, in their mind, their faith is behind them in their heritage and they feel somehow secure in the fact that their father's a pastor or their granddaddy was a pastor or they have, or, or they have a heritage. And, then, and this is what uh, we're going to see next week, how the, the Jewish folks were trusting in their heritage and were not being saved by faith in Christ. Some of you are basing your strength on accomplishments, things that you've accomplished. But here's one that I think is so deadly. This is so deadly. Is that many would base their strength, their sense of well-being in their moral and ethical behavior. This is the frightening one. This is why that I think in the pews and chairs of so many good churches like Westside, there are people who are spiritually dead but they're walking in and out in their suits and ties and dresses, walking in and out of their Sunday school classes and life groups, but they're spiritually dead. You know what they're trusting in? I'm pretty good. I'm morally and ethically a good person. 
I remember when I was in my 20s, one of my first faith visits or CWT visits, I remember. I was so excited. I went to this house and I knocked on this door. It was in Richmond. And this uh, man answered the door and I introduced myself and told him we were out from our church. And, and I asked him the key question, do you know if you were to die tonight whether you'd go to heaven or not? He said, I'm pretty sure I would. And I said, why? He says, well, I'm a surgeon. I'm a heart surgeon. Every day, I hold people's lives in my hands and I give them life. And I proceeded to tell him, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I, I started just kind of working my way through that and I could just see the heat level rising in his eyes. I dared to question his goodness and his value on earth. I dared to question his standing with God. Do you not see what I do? Do you not see the degrees on my wall? Do you not see the people walking around that I literally brought back to life from the dead? The life we have in Jesus is never like that. When you're born again, it's a life of believing in Christ and you will be boasting in Christ and you won't stumble over your own goodness. And it will finally, look, in verse 10, it says, we, will, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works and it will be a life of becoming more and more like Christ as, as the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit begins to change us. We're born again and, and like Lazarus, the Spirit unwraps us you know, kind of takes the gauze off and helps us become more and more like Jesus in our, out, in our outward behavior. And we begin to love people the way Christ did. And we begin to love God the way Christ did. And, and it, that's what marks the life that comes to us in Christ. Now, how do we get there? How do we get there? What is this path? How do all of us in here who are Gentiles, and if you're Jewish, guess what? You're still spiritually dead without Christ. How do we get there? It's this simple. Let me show you. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his reaches on all who what? Call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means that this morning, if you're here, you can simply turn and call out to Christ. But you must be willing to stop boasting on your own life, your own accomplishments, you come, you, you kind of have to get lost and understand what you are before Christ, spiritually dead, and then you look up in your helplessness, in faith, and you call upon the name of the Lord. You can do that. 
How does that happen? Well, verse 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone, Chauncey, preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. I pray that you hear the gospel this morning. I hope you hear your life apart from Christ, spiritually dead, physically disqualified. But God being rich in mercy, God being rich in mercy, because of his great love, he made us alive in who? In Christ Jesus. Will you call upon the name of the Lord this morning and be saved? You can. Let's pray together. With every head bowed and eye closed, it's been our prayer that this morning some of you would hear the call of Jesus out of your spiritual tomb. Like Lazarus in that wonderful New Testament historical record where it says that Lazarus had been dead for days and as a demonstration of what he could do spiritually, Jesus decided to resurrect Lazarus physically. And I just, wouldn't it have been amazing to be in that tomb with Lazarus and just see him hear Jesus? Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, I believe Jesus is calling to some of you your name right now because you need to come out of trusting in your own strength. You need to come out of the tomb of trusting in your own accomplishments. You need to come out of the tomb of trusting in the strength of your resources or in in the power of your intellect. You just need to come. It's got you wrapped up like Lazarus. You're spiritually dead, and he's inviting you to come out. Would you turn in your need right now and simply pray this prayer? Just say, Jesus, if you would, just pray it with me. If you need to receive Christ, say, Jesus, I hear you calling. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for not leaving me in my spiritual death. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart and life. Cause me to be born again. 